I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. There is a conversion of sorts happening in our home. Our cat, June, who is primarily an indoor cat, has been making more frequent and more adventurous excursions outdoors. She's exploring and going a little further each time. It seems that she is becoming an outdoor cat. As I have accompanied June on these short walks, watching out to make sure she doesn't go too far, I've noticed something about June's worldview, at least when it comes to the out of doors. Everything outside intrigues her. Everything is worthy of attention and possibly stalking and pouncing upon. Birds and squirrels, of course, but also the blades of grass, a ribbon swaying in the wind. Outdoors, June lives in a world alive with possibility, alive with movement. I think our Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah 43 invites us, the people of God, to adopt a similar perspective. It invites us into a world alive with possibility, alive with the movement of God. These six verses in Isaiah 43, they come in a section of the book of Isaiah that is often called, sometimes called, Second Isaiah. From chapters 40 to 66, this section of the book relates to the end of Israel's captivity in Babylon, the end of their exile. And in these 27 chapters, there's these different prophetic messages but they all kind of have the theme. They all point toward expectation and hope despite Israel's current and seemingly permanent circumstances of suffering, of oppression. And for us today as the people of God, as the church in the back half of Lent and in these times in our world and in your lives, in my life, it seems this word, the invitation of Isaiah 43 is particularly timely an invitation from the Holy Spirit to, to dwell in possibility, to move into greater expectation and deeper hope. That we might hear and receive this invitation this morning, I'd like to focus on two elements of the passage this morning. First is the former things, the things of the past. And second is the defiant expectation of something new. So first, the former things. Mark Twain is reputedly to have once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That is, the past echoes in the present, the future. It's not exactly the same, but it continues to have an impact, and the same thing, similar things unfold. The book of Isaiah, and indeed the verses we just read this morning, suggest a complex relationship with the past, with former things. There's this clear exhortation, right? Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Yet elsewhere in Isaiah, just in the next couple of chapters, Isaiah 46, 9, there's this command, remember the former things of old. For I am God, remember the former things. Even in the opening verses of our reading, there's this recollection, right, of God's defeat of the Egyptian oppressive army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And so it seems like there's when it comes to forgetting the past, there's kind of this selective or incomplete nature to it, to what's going on here. And this question, of course, is not abstract, not just for the ancients. 
there's an ongoing contentious conversation in this country about how it is that we talk and teach about the past, specifically as it relates to racial injustice and that ongoing legacy in the nation. More personally, the language of trauma has, for many of us, given us categories, ways of thinking that account for experiences, big experiences, small experiences, that continue to impact our lives, play out in our lives. Many people are freshly discovering that we may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Yet that discovery often brings the question of how do I move forward with my own wounds and baggage? How do I move into the future? Both at the macro, national level, the micro, more individual, there's uncertainty about how it is that we engage with the past and move into the future. How do we contend with the past while allowing for new possibilities, for growth, for redemption, for change? A recent cover article in Harper's Magazine, for example, questioned how pervasive the language of trauma has become in our culture, how widely used, and suggested the degree to that it, it can uh, unhealthily narrow our sense of ourselves and the sense of possibility we have for the future. How do you avoid being defined by the past while also naming and accounting for it? That, for many of us, is the ongoing struggle. Am I just repeating the same mistakes? Am I just following the same patterns of heart, mind, and body? Am I just circling the same formative, hurtful experiences? Having a right relationship with the past is especially integral for the people of God, for the followers of Jesus, who are both called to remember the past, right? Like, remember, do this in remembrance of me, but are also called to strain toward what is ahead in the future. In the book of Isaiah, the, this concept, the former things, appears a number of times, and it repeatedly refers to the actions of God in history. The former things are those things that God has done in the past. So that includes the Exodus, God's great defining act of deliverance. And it also includes God's of actions that were, at least experientially, more negative for his people. Actions of judgment, right? The exile itself, the Babylonian captivity. According to Isaiah, this conquest by the local superpower was not something that just happened to the people of God but was God's faithful response to their faithlessness, to sin, to idolatry. And so it's an action that shares something with the Exodus, even as they're kind of the opposite. Both are among the former things that God has done. Yet there is this difference in how these things are to impact and shape the present, the future of God's people. The former thing of the Exodus God's miraculous defeat of this tyrannical army is held forth as instructive, important for Israel's current experience. Remember this, Isaiah is saying. Under the hold of this great power, earthly speaking, without a hope, a hope for change, a hope for something new, there is the necessity to live in the wake of this truth, this happening. God's faithful, his active deliverance of his people in history. Yet there's also in this time in Israel's history the danger of assuming that the former things, their exile, their captivity, are defining. That the judgment of God is the last word, permanent word in history. 
For this generation of Israelites born in exile, there would have been the temptation to see that experience, the reality that they could touch and see as normative, as defining, as in some way unchangeable. The status quo endures. And to that belief, the word of God says no. Says forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Not in the sense of like, amnesia, bump on the head, or this some like Pollyanna denial ignorance. But do not presume, Isaiah is saying, that the way things are, that what you've been born into will always be. Do not assume that as the people of God, the word, the final word is one of judgment. Forget about the past. What might that mean for us today? I am certainly not inviting you to think that all of your negative experiences are the judgment of God. How God's providence relates to our experiences, especially of trauma and suffering, is mysterious. It takes great discernment. I'm not saying that. Rather, I think an implication of this is that for us, the current state of affairs in the world and in your lives, in my life, by the power of God, do not need to be accepted as the way things will always be. The situation you've been born into, the past that you have been given, whatever has been done to you, the things that you have done to others need not define your existence. What has been spoken over you or or not spoken over you need not define your future. Rather, what is definitive is the reality of God's deliverance and triumph in Christ, in his life, in his death, his resurrection upon the cross. Now by the Holy Spirit, the deliverance of God being applied to your life in history, that is what is defining. God's mighty acts of salvation, these are the former things to be held onto. Do not forget. Don't forget the cross, like hold that before you. Come to the table, remember the mighty acts of God, his deliverance. And more specifically, in your life, remember the deliverance of the Lord, the ways that he has provided for you, how he has redeemed what was meant for evil, how he has guided you. Teach your children about this, about the cross, but about, too, the the experiential sense of God's goodness that you have in your life. Dwell at this table, dwell in your life upon these truths. Cling to them. Yes, the evil that has happened does not disappear. The traumas you've suffered, the effects, the earthly consequences of the wrongs we have done, these things continue to have an impact. In the world around us, we continue to see the legacy of brokenness playing out in this city, in this country. But by the power of God, these realities are not permanent, are not final. By the power of God, something new is And different is possible. In the world, the the kingdom of God's justice and peace, his shalom is breaking forth, is springing up. And in your life, where there are, are sinful habits that you're addicted to, where there are patterns of thought that you cannot change, where the hold of the abuse that you have suffered seems so strong, there is in Christ, by the power of God, the possibility of something new, something different, something better. These painful pasts, these real wounds continue 
to rhyme in our lives, as Twain said. And we must name that. We must lament that. But it is the deliverance of God. It is his salvation that most powerfully echoes through the ages. It is his deliverance, his capacity to save, to redeem, to make whole, that defines us. I was recently watching this TV show where the main characters, uh, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, they were being invited by this researcher to uh, define themselves in whatever terms they preferred. It was very interesting what was, said, what was said and what was left out. So I'm a, a man, I'm a Jew, I'm an academic, or I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a, a tech vice president. How might we answer that question? It seems to me an implication of what we're reading, the word of God today, is that as the people of God, we might appropriately first say, I am made in the image of the true God. I've been bought with a price. I am being delivered by the right hand of the mighty Lord, and I am destined for glory. These, we might say, are the defining realities. What God has done for us, for his people, for his creation, his delivering us, his redeeming of us, his healing of us, these are the former things that endure, that define us now in the present and will define our future. In the final chapters of Isaiah, uh, these chapters culminate with God's declaration, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. In the language of our psalm, we say we weep now. We sow in tears. The past is not through with us. But one day, we will be like those who dream. The former things will be forgotten. We will come again in joy as our captivity to sin to trauma, to the past is fully and finally overturned in Christ. And that's not just a word for the future. That's not just a word about the far off. The testimony of our passage, Isaiah 43, is that God is now making a way in the wilderness, is today making streams in our wasteland. So our cat, June, she has the zeal of a new convert, right? The world is alive. She's eternally optimistic. Anything is possible. She's like Kevin Garnett there. She needs to discern, to learn what is alive, what is not. But it would be a colossal mistake to come to the conclusion that because not everything moves, therefore nothing moves, it would be a colossal mistake for us to conclude that because not everything is possible, that because we, we still feel the effects of the past, because we have un, seemingly unanswered prayers, because we have disappointments, because we encounter suffering, it would be a mistake to assume that God then is not moving, that God is not able to make a way in the wilderness today. The wilderness in the Bible is this place of desolation and reproach. It's where creation itself seems to be returning to this like formless, chaotic state where life can't be sustained. It's a place where people are undone and death and decay seem like the only possibility. Yet the declaration here in Isaiah is that even in such a severe and unforgiving place, the God of life, the God of creation is able to make a way, is able to provide for his people, for you, chosen in Christ, 
and to even transform that wilderness such that the, the jackals and owls, the, the animals of the wilderness will honor him for the transformation taking place. He's able to make it a place of possibility where streams flow, where life and flourishing can happen, even in the wasteland. We are in the wilderness now. In the season of Lent, by our fasting and our disciplines, we, we enter into the wilderness. It's perhaps hard. It's hard for me. But we do so confident that God is sovereign and able to provide in such a place, such a time. That's why we enter into the wilderness for even these seven weeks, to be reminded that in him there is possibility and provision. He has what we need, what we hope for, what we long for. But beyond just this season, we are in the wilderness of life. Many of us profoundly so. In our bodies, in our hearts, and in our minds, we're in the wasteland. And the world around can seem perpetually parched and weary, without possibility. So we're confused. We are fearful. We are weary, longing for, for something, for something new, for movement, for healing, for life and possibility. And the, the promise of God to us is that just as he has done in the past, and just as he will surely do in the future, he can even now today give signs, give foretastes of what is coming. He is today able to spring up a well, able to give living water, to make the desert places of your life a spring. In Jesus, God has continued. He's brought to the highest point his deliverance, his healing of creation, his provision to us wilderness of judgment of sin and brokenness and he is now in this moment pouring out his holy spirit like living water in the world and upon his people so that we can be revived and refreshed that the wilderness of our lives of our world might be transformed by the power of the holy spirit new life and healing are possible so we hold to this promise and we press forward in the defiant expectation of something new. That's our second concluding heading. The defiant expectation of something new. At the end of his trial regarding his claims about the Earth's orbit around the sun, it said that Galileo, having been found wrong erroneously, muttered under his breath in defiance of the court, but the Earth does move. I know Galileo, for some, is the patron saint of scientific skepticism. And his trial was this incredibly complex moment in church history and politics, a travesty in many ways. But it seems to me in this defiant statement, but it does move. Galileo is an exemplar, can be an exemplar of faith. And his words may in some way be ours today. In light of the passage, in light of the promise that God is doing an ever new thing. We say the earth does move. New creation is coming. The way things are will not always be. In Christ and now by his Holy Spirit, God is free and able to deliver and make things new. As we conclude in just a few moments, we're going to again, as we did earlier this Lent, take some time to worship and to pray. 
There will be people available throughout the room to pray with you about any need whatsoever. There will be opportunity to seek out prayer. And there's the opportunity simply to be together and worship together in the presence of God. For some of us, we come to that a moment alive and awake to the possibility of God doing something, of things changing. We come eager and ready, full of expectation. Thanks be to God. But for others of us, we come to this moment consciously in the wilderness. It's the dominant reality of our hearts and our minds. We're weary, we're discouraged, we are struggling to believe. It seems so long since we saw any movement, since we had any sense of God's activity in our lives and in the world. And for those of us in that place, the invitation to come for prayer or to enter into worship is an invitation to faithful defiance. To come forward for prayer yet again in defiance of the doubt that we have. To sing and to hold to the promises of God in defiance of the notion that the wilderness is unchanging and permanent. To stand in defiance of a spirit of unbelief, the spirit of our age. And to boldly, maybe with tears, with a failing heart, cling to the promise that the world is not closed to the kingdom of God and to his faithfulness. In defiance of unbelief, I want to encourage you in Paul's exhortation, press on in faith, strain forward in hope, call upon the Lord who does new things, who is making all things new. Hold fast to the promise that he will transform the wilderness, that he will overcome what so often seems unchangeable in our lives, in the world around us, that the former things will be forgotten and that a new heavens, a new earth will be made. In that faithful defiance, we confess that the world is alive with possibility, the possibility and promise of God's presence because of his deliverance in the past and because the gift of his Holy Spirit today, something new and better is possible. The world in our lives so often feels static and unchanging, don't they? Locked in sin and decay. But by the power of God, we say there is movement. Those who are in Christ dwell in possibility. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we transition, the band comes up to lead us in worship. I want to invite you to stand, and I'd like to pray for us. As I have thought about this time and prayed over this time, this, these next few moments in our worship, the, the picture that has come to mind has been that of Jacob in Genesis 32, where he wrestles with God. He clings to the Lord that he might receive a blessing. He does not let go. And what I love about that image is that it is physical, right? He doesn't like conceptually say like, I'm clinging to God, but he physically, there's something very tactile about it. And so I wanna encourage you, you might not be, feel comfortable to go pray with someone, but physically, is there a way to kind of cling to the promises of the Lord? Is it the posture of kneeling, a posture of standing, raising your hands? Maybe it is coming forward in prayer, not expecting much. But I want to encourage you this morning, find a way to cling to the Lord, to cling to his promises, that you might be blessed, that you might taste and see in a fresh way, in a new way, the goodness of God. Let me pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for your presence among us, this group of people this morning. Thank you that you draw near to us. 
Thank you, O Lord, that you are mighty to save, that you are able to make things new. And so we do lift in this time ourselves, the world around us, the situations where we feel the wilderness and wasteland of sin and judgment of of brokenness. And we ask that you would bring, you would spring up springs of living water and that you would shed your spirit upon us such that we ourselves would be made new, would would be made spigots, would be made a fountain of the living God, of the Holy Spirit. Draw near to us, we pray. Those of us who are encouraged and those of us who are failing, draw near to us, we pray, O Lord. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. I invite you to participate in worship and prayer workers will be available throughout the room. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come into thy freedom.